Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode. My name is Mickey. I'm a worship arts coordinator at Baylife Church. And I'm Travis, and I'm the teaching pastor at Baylife Church. And we want to welcome you to the Stone Table. I feel like we need to comment on our cool new intro music. Yes, we have a bit of a new format. Yeah, we do. Um, and, and this is birthed out of a lot of things. Yeah. Um, one of which is that uh, a group of our friends said they had been hearing our podcast theme song on <laughs> radio ads. So Yes, uh, and we decided that we, you know, maybe that's just a sign. It's it's just time for us to uh, change have it a up. fresh sound. Yeah. So we we've done some digging. We have uh, purchased some some new uh, theme some new theme songs. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I I think they sound great. I'm super excited. I, I do listen too. to them in the office all day. Yes. I I don't know about you guys, but I like to listen to music while I'm working and reading. And Travis, you do too. Mm-hmm. And yeah. most of our go to stuff is just uh, lo-fi, mm-hmm. chilled music to study to. Yeah. So we said <laughs> hey, you that's know? the name of a of a playlist that we found online. <laughs> yeah. And so we like we like. A a lot of the lo-fi jazz mm-hmm. hop type yeah. music because there's no words to them it's right. just cool beats and i don't know especially in the last few months because we haven't been able to go out mm-hmm. and work normally we, we would like have gone coffee to coffee shop, shop and work like that, yeah. and that's the music that's always playing right. like at foundation rest in peace yeah <laughs> <laughs> <It's> <laughs> where true. our favorite coffee shop yeah um that that's the music that they would always have playing. Yeah. So we try to mimic that exactly. in our own in our own office. And I figure, you know, if we're rebranding and we're picking a new theme song, we might as well pick the sort of song that that we would listen to, even if it wasn't our theme song. Exactly. So, so uh, that kind of brings us to the actual show. We we've changed the theme song, but same old show. Same old show. Essentially the same format. Uh, we are today sitting down for an interview with a guy named David Taylor. And David Taylor is the director of the Brem Center, which mm-hmm. is an extension of Fuller Theological Seminary out in Houston, Texas. Although, as you'll hear in this interview, he's not a resident of Houston. He currently lives in Austin, Texas. And David Taylor has been really an important person in the conversation about the relationship between faith and art for a long, long time. Yeah. Yeah, we got to have a really great conversation with him about uh, just uh, how the church engages with art and really the the formative power of the of the arts and the and the power that they have over our li- our lives mm-hmm. and uh, over the church and yeah. how we function. Yeah, and we really kind of used as a jumping off point David's new book, The Glimpses of the New Creation, which yeah. is just a, a brilliant book exploring the way that so good. different art forms form and shape the church, but also the ways that certain art forms open up possibilities for formation. And then they also close down some opportunities for formation as well. And David is just a really cool guy. You'll hear this in the beginning of the interview. (laughs) Um, He's so much fun to talk to. And and really one of the the big things that he did that, that we discuss early on in the interview is that he set up a meeting between Eugene Peterson, who's the translator of the Message Bible. Eugene Peterson is just kind of a beloved theologian and pastor, yeah. and Bono. And and when you hear Bono, you should know that is the actual Bono, the singer yeah. of U2. You too, man. So there are uh, a bunch of videos online, if you search David Taylor's work, of him hanging out with Bono and talking about the Psalms. <laughs> and, and that makes him the first person I've ever met who is friends who with knows? Bono. <laughs> who is friends with, you know? Yeah. It's so cool. And man, you guys, this was such a treat for us because the arts are I mean it's a world that Travis and I are a part of and we so dearly love and a lot of the people in our lives are artists and and Christian artists Mm -hmm. and uh, always kind of living in in that line of uh, how they can serve the church with their art and and how we as a church can serve artists by giving them a place uh, no matter what it looks like Um, it was just such a great conversation and we are so excited to share this conversation with you guys yeah so with that being said let's go ahead and let's jump into our conversation with david taylor about the formative power of the arts (laughs) 
So David, thank you so much for being with us here today. We are so excited to have you on the stone table and we have so look have been looking forward to to having this interview to talk about your new book, uh, Glimpses of the New Creation. Well, thank you. I, I, I will tell you that you are the first podcast I have done on this book. Oh, okay. And uh, I'm super excited because I've spent the last three months doing podcasts on my Psalms book. Right, because that came out. Which is wonderful. Recent, very March. recent, right. Uh -huh. Yeah, yeah. But I sometimes forget that I also have another book that came out <laughs> this last fall. Yeah. So I was like, yes. <laughs> yes, we we so enjoyed the book. So yeah. we are very excited to talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. I um, So I've been following your work for a long time, a, a number of years. Okay. And okay. I, this actually showed up. This is how I find most books now. The Amazon algorithm says oh. you might like this. Wow. And, and so it came up in the Amazon algorithm and I said, oh my gosh, David, David Taylor has a new book. And I was telling Mickey about it and I was like, we, we need, we need to read this. And I don't know if he'll come on the show <laughs> or not, but we need to read it regardless. So, oh uh, man, yeah, it's That's been, awesome. it's a, it's a great book. We've so, so enjoyed it. And oh, thank uh, you. as we kind of jump into the podcast, we, we normally yeah. ask some initial questions to, to get to know our guests a little bit better. Uh -huh. And, mm -hmm. and I know that you are the director of the Brem Center in Austin, or Houston, Texas. I almost said Austin, Houston, Texas. Uh, now, I don't think, I think I've been to Houston once and I was there when I was on tour and so I was there for a day. And so I didn't get to mm -hmm. do anything. I showed up, okay. I played the show and I left. Okay. But if we were to come to Houston and just spend some time in your city, what are the places we need to go? What are the sites we need to see? Yeah, what, what, is, what is the good and great and beautiful in Houston that needs to be <laughs> experienced? Um. If you don't mind, I'm going to answer this in a slightly roundabout way. Okay, and sure. And the first thing I'm going to tell you is that I actually live in Austin. You oh. do? But I thought the Bre <laughs> is the Brem Center in Houston? <laughs> okay, so so here's the long and short of it, just so that people have a little bit of context. I was born and raised in Guatemala, so I was a missionary kid, and then moved to Chicago, and then to Arkansas for high school, and then I went to University of Texas in Austin, and then I went to seminary in Canada in Vancouver, British Columbia. Wow. And then I went back to Austin to be a pastor for 10 years, and then I moved to North Carolina to get a PhD, and then I moved to Houston Okay. Okay. five years. Okay, so we got the Houston part. Fuller Seminary has a campus in Houston, and the main campus is in Pasadena, California. Right. So my main job is uh, as a professor of theology and culture, and so I teach theology classes, and then I teach like art and theology, worship and, and the arts, uh, you know, things like that. <clears throat> but last summer, uh, we moved back to Austin because all my extended family is in Austin, mm. and everybody was having some very specific kinds of challenges in life. And so I now live in Austin and because half of my courses are online, it doesn't matter where I live. I could live in oh, Paris, gotcha. Texas or Paris, France. <laughs> so, so our, our research has failed in this front. We were trying no, to make sure not. we had done our due diligence. And, <laughs> so you but did I live in Houston. Many things about Houston that are wonderful. <laughs> let's, let's do Austin. Let's do Austin. Yeah. Yes. That's where you're from or where you are yes. now. So. Well, it is the so-called, because we're not really sure if it's objectively true, but the so-called live music capital of the world. Okay. And Got I it. think it's just one of those slogans that the city adopted because, you know, every city has something that they're proud of. It's simply saying that there's a lot of live music that happens in, in this city. But, you know, the capital is here. And uh, it's a lot of political life. The University of Texas is obviously in the city. So you know, a vibrant academic life. So arts, politics, education, and then in the last 25 years, like the tech industry has really surged and this mass migration primarily from California, kind of that tech world. And so one of the big festivals here in town is called South by Southwest. Right. And it has a film, a music, and then I think they call it interactive, but it's kind of like that technology, cool. you know, hub. So it's pretty fun. Uh, we love Austin a lot. Very cool. So I've never been to Texas at all. 
But what? I, I know. I know. Travis has been a, a couple times. Mm-hmm. I yeah. mean, generally. Right. But I've never been. So I'm very excited to check that out. Okay. Come on down. I will. So, David, my first exposure to you actually was the series of conversations that you put together between Bono and Eugene Peterson. So I, I let me just tell you, I so appreciated the conversation in that. Uh, mm. about the Psalms and the mm. cinematography in that video was incredible. So it was very, it was visually just incredible. And I, and I just love the content. So that was mm. the first time I, I got to Wonderful. see any of your work. So that was really cool for me. And I've got to ask, and I'm sure you get, que- you get questions like this all the time, but how did that come about? How did you go about just orchestrating that whole thing? Yeah, it was, uh, it was certainly a once in a lifetime and never to be repeated. <laughs> <laughs> it's good that it was filmed um, then. That's a, it was documented. Yes, it was. I know, I know. Well, you know, it originally had been imagined as a one-day conference on the Psalms. And uh, I, I'd been interested in the Psalms for some time, certainly going back to my seminary years when I had Eugene Peterson as a professor. But um, gosh, the long and short of it is I actually had a dream. I'm just going to sound really weird, but uh, I don't normally dream about Eugene and Bono in the same dream. <laughs> I sounds prophetic. Yeah. About Bono. <laughs> um, I mean, I've always loved their music, right? Going back to the 80s and the Joshua Tree album. But I woke up and I thought, that was an awesome dream. That was amazing to hang out with people. Wouldn't it be great to get them in person? <laughs> yeah. And so, so I told my wife uh, that that would be a great idea. And she just, you know, nodded her head and said, sure. That would be great, David. That's incredible. I feel like you you give me the nod. Sure, that'd be great, Travis, all the time. So I understand. That's a good idea. Well, I had a friend. I have a friend. His name is Charlie Peacock, and uh, he's a musician in Nashville. Um, and he had hosted Bono in his home in the early 2000s when Bono was doing a lot of the debt relief for Africa kind of work. So got a bunch of key musicians in Nashville hosted uh, for one night. So I, um, like three days later, I was going to a retreat, a retreat center here in Texas. And I knew Charlie would be there. Eugene Peterson would be there and a couple other key people. I thought my dream, my dream is happening. (laughs) (laughs) And so I asked Charlie, what are the chances do you think Bono would, you know, say yes to hanging out with Eugene in person? And he said, 50%. I was like, 50%. That is a, that's much bigger than the 2%. Yeah. It's not zero. It's definitely it's not zero. There you go. Uh, so long story short, I asked Eugene, he said he'd be up to it. And so I wrote a letter and then Charlie passed it along to one of Bono's many millions of assistants. And I heard nothing for three months. And I thought, you know what? You swing for the fences, sure. give it a try. Mm-hmm. And then life goes on. And I'm in the middle of teaching one of my theology classes. This is January, 2015. And we're taking a break. I look at my email and I see an email from somebody whose name sounds Irish. Okay. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and it's, it's one of his assistants saying, wow. we're interested. Oh my gosh. Yeah, so I, like, I know that's, I got goosebumps, you know, I was like, yes. I would have canceled the class and just <laughs> run across campus celebrating. <laughs> I know, seriously. Um, and uh, again, long story short, we then tried to find one day, one afternoon, mm-hmm. one hour that both of them could do it. Well, their YouTube was getting ready for the songs of, was it Experience Tour? Songs of Innocence, I think. It was Innocence. Yeah, Innocence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I should know these things. Um, and we couldn't. And then there was one day that Bono could. could and I called Eugene. He's like, I'm so sorry. I can't. My son's going in for surgery that day. I thought, that's it. We gave it a try. You know, what else can you do? And I was just a little bit depressed, but I thought, you know what? It, it, I mean, it was kind of fun to see if it would happen. But yeah. so, a couple of days later, a friend of mine said, what if you reconceived it? Not as a conference, but as a filmed gathering. Mm. It would be smaller. You, know, you could see if Bono would fly to Eugene's home. I was like, that is a great idea. So I called, uh, Miss Irish assistant in Dublin. <laughs> and I said, hi, what are the chances? And she phoned back and said, he's up to it. So that was April 19th. Uh, Bono and two assistants flew from Vancouver. They'd been rehearsing because that was the first city for the oh, okay. tour. Came in his little pli- private jet and uh, walked up to the Peterson's home, as you see in the short film. And, and he'd requested an hour alone with Eugene and Jan. 
And I found out a year later, um, I had a, he, you two had come to Houston uh, for the Joshua Tree, um, you know, yeah. uh, what was it? Joshua anniversary Tree. tour? Yeah, anniversary tour. And um, I ended up going out to dinner with him and, and a few other people. And he said, you know, I wanted to let you know the reason why I had asked for an hour was because I wanted to confess my sins. I was like, that wow. is really amazing. Wow. And so he had, and he told me that it had been really good for his soul. So that was that. And then we had our on camera a few days later, I was in Houston waiting at the airport, waiting for our luggage. And I saw an email from somebody whom I did not know, but there are three initials PDH. I was like, I wonder who PDH is. <laughs> well, do you know who PDH is? I can guess, but I truly, I truly don't know. <laughs> Paul David Hewson. Oh, okay. Which is his birth name. Right. Yeah. And uh, Bono's birth name. And um, he's like, hey, thanks so much. This is wonderful. I want to apologize because I felt like I wasn't prepared. And I, I, I don't like that. And, and so can I make it up to you? And I said, yes, you can. <laughs> indeed <laughs> <And> you can. <laughs> indeed you can. Let me count the ways. And so then we found him in, in, in New York, in the New York stop. This was in July. And then we, we met in, in an art gallery there. And so we did a second filmed conversation, which you know, again, spliced together. And, uh, and then it was released a year later. So I'm sorry, that was a long version. Not at all. I think that was that was an incredible look. I, like I I watched it when it came out in 2015, and I think you uh -huh. saw it recently. And it's it's an it's an amazing just a piece of of work. And visually, yeah. the conversation is rich. the The cinematography, as Mickey said, is phenomenal. Uh, and, and you can tell that that it's put together by somebody who cares about creativity and truth and goodness and and beauty. And yeah. I know that the the conversation that you've been having around the role of the arts in the church is one that has been taking place for a long time. You've been involved mm. in this discussion for years. And so I mm. guess as we, as we start to, to hone in on your book, I, I just would love to know how did you get involved in thinking about the relationship yeah. between faith and the arts and creativity? Yeah. Well, I was raised in an evangelical non-denom um, kind of church world. Um, Dallas Theological Seminary kind of orbit um, and many, many good things about that tradition. I wouldn't say that the arts played a central role in that church tradition. My mother was a, um, a classical pianist, so she loved the arts and she helped us as, as kids appreciate the arts, but I never imagined that the arts would be important to my life in any kind of you know central way. In college, I studied international relations, was felt called to the foreign service, uh, the kind of diplomatic world. And I think maybe because I'd lived overseas, you know, growing up, I right. was drawn towards that world. But it was my first year in seminary. I took a course with a gentleman named Paul Stevens. The course was titled Work, Vocation, and Ministry. And the argument of the course is we all have work, we all have a vocation, we all have ministry. Mm -hmm. And um, I just had this little stirring in, in my heart to wonder what the vocation of an artist might look like. Like mm. if you were to describe it, yeah. what is the vocation, um, the calling? Uh, and to distinguish that from like any kind of ministry aspect or occupational or professional aspect, like sure. a, a calling, right? And so I wrote a paper. Um, this was... Um, um, 1995, um, and um, went home for Christmas in Austin, and the pastor of a certain church called Hope Chapel, I had dinner with him, and he just very offhandedly said, would you ever be open to doing a church internship? I was like, man, I've never imagined working for the church, never wanted to be a pastor. I don't know. I think the answer is probably no, but I'll pray about it, because <laughs> what else are you going to say when the pastor says, would you right. consider it? <laughs> At least pray about it. Sure, right. right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, be careful once you start praying for something. Um, Dangerous. So true. It is, it is, especially if your heart is like sort of open. And um, and I did, and I felt that, again, sort of this nudge, you know, nudge from the Holy Spirit to say, you know, I think you should say yes. So May of 96 
landed back in Austin, was a waiter at a, a Tex-Mex restaurant. That was how I made my big bucks to go to seminary. <laughs> and then uh, did this first internship. And then 96, 97, 98, 99, I, I did these internships. And that's where I began to explore you know, what place might the arts play either in service of worship or discipleship community or a mission and evangelism, just kind of all the aspects of church life. Right. And then beyond it, you know, um, what, what would it look like for Christians who are artists to be faithful to their medium, you know, and to their context. And then I was invited to go full-time. So January, 2001, um, uh, came back to Austin and was a pastor for about nine years. And um, so one of my responsibilities was in service of an arts ministry. And uh, so we had lots of trials and errors and lots of errors and sure. failures and um, got things wrong, got things massively wrong in some ways. <laughs> um, but that was it. Yeah, so it was very much, um, I wrote papers in seminary to try to sort of conceptualize like had like a theoretical frame, like why, why do we do what we do? But then the hands-on grassroots practical side was immensely helpful um, for me. And then now I get to teach about it. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. And, and, and the topic is so interesting and for so many reasons. And I feel like we have a lot of friends who are artists and and we just know so many people who just feel drawn to this. Mm. And Mm. uh, sometimes it might seem for some people that the relationship between the church and the arts is kind of like a minefield, depending Mm. on the, the, I guess the stance of either. And, and I think there's a lot of misunderstanding there too. Yeah. Um, especially when you're talking about worship and the service of worship. So Mm. in your, um, experience and in your opinion, what are some of the ways that you've seen maybe the church misunderstand the significance of the arts mm. and mm-hmm. also on re- in retrospect, how might some artists misunderstand the church? Sure. I, that's a great question. I just finished teaching a course, which I call uh, the vocation of the artist. And I'm in the middle of grading final papers right now. And it's a, it's a lot of fun to see what my students may have learned or not learned <laughs> from me. And um, one of the things we talk about is this history. And I guess the short answer to your question is that uh, ch- the church world misunderstands the art world and vice versa in all sorts of ways and for all sorts of reasons. <laughs> it's a complex. I mean, it answer. is. Yeah. You know, pick a card, any card. Part of the confusion actually lies with the term itself, uh, the term art, which comes from the Greek word techne, which of course you can hear what else techne kind of results in our English vocabulary. It sounds like technique, right? And technology. Uh, and from the, the Latin, you know, ours, which is sort of Latin word for, for like craft. And for a thousand years in the Western world, artists were Art, craft, uh, crafts people, craftsmen, craftswomen, they were artisans. There was only one way of being an artist, and that was in service of the political world or the aristocratic world or the religious world or the common life of, you know, a village. And so you had guilds, right? Metal and woodworking and textile and, 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 and painters and so on and so forth. And it's only in the, the early modern era, you know, say around, say, the 15th century, that you get the development of this idea that an, that an artist, quote unquote, is somebody who makes work that is primarily uh, intended to express their inner vision of the world, and then somebody pays money for that artist's vision. So it right. individualizes the concept of an artist's vocation. It, it did, yeah. right? Um, and it, it, that's not actually a bad thing. There are a lot of novels and paintings and, you know, dances and works of music that we love it, you know? Like U2 is giving us a vision of what they think life is about and we pay right. money, right? So for those things, or whatever, you, you name your musicians. Sure. Um, but a, a lot of the confusion is around like, so what is art again? And what is it for? And mm. who is an artist? And who is a real artist? In the context of the church, I would say you probably have four very specific challenges. The first is what I'll call a pragmatic utilitarian tendency, which is to want to reduce 
all of life as essentially to that which can be quantifiable and measurable, right? If I'm a farmer and I make, you know, corn, I want the corn to be quantifiably good corn that serves the purposes of feeding cattle and right. human beings, right? So if you make a work of art, I'm now going to adopt these sort of utilitarian frames of mind to say, but what does it do? Mm. And so the question is, well, what do we mean by what does it do? And the wonderful thing, well, I tell my students the wonderful thing, is that God has made a world that could be described in summary as a world that is good for food and pleasing to the eye. It's good for practical purposes, practical biological, practical astronomical, practical economical, you know, practical in every sense, right? That helps humans flourish. Right. But the flourishing is also aesthetic. That is, we experience things for the sake of joy. And a lot of art has sort of, that's the purpose. Like, it's like when my daughter asked me, why do I like hot peppers? I say, well, I, <laughs> I like sort of the experience of, you know, the spice on my tongue, but why? Well, because I like how they combine with certain foods. But why? Well, because <laughs> I find myself bored with life and a, and a hot pepper so it wakes me up. There you but go. <laughs> okay? Yeah, that's and, the and, ultimate. And, yeah. Yeah. And then eventually I get to the end of the questions and I say, you know what, baby girl? Just because. I love it. Yeah. And that is the world that God has made. And that's why I, I have my students really understand theologically, who is this God whom we know and love and worship? He's a creator God, a maker God, a God who makes things for aesthetic purposes, for the sake of our delight in color yeah. and texture and sound and taste, all of our senses, right? So that's one of the things that artists offer us, but this sort of pragmatic utilitarian will reduce and say all of life well, that's not the world that God has made. And artists are helping to invite us into this, what Eugene calls mm. this large country of salvation. In short, I would say the other things are sort of rationalistic, um, propositionalist, kind of like the only way that something can be truly true is if I can rationally understand mm -hmm. it in some way um, or kind of reduce to rational, propositional. And then that leaves no place for the imagination. Right motion, for metaphor, for figurative speech. One of the things I tell my students is um, the Psalms is the largest book of the Bible. It's all poetry. It's all metaphor. And the goal is not to get around the poetry or, or get beyond the metaphor to like the real truth. Mm -hmm. The true knowledge of God and the true love of God goes through poetry, goes through metaphor. That's good. The same way yeah you know, Jesus's ministry, it goes through the parable, not beyond the parable. Mm. And so the way that we figure out reality is through figurative means. And that's the arts is trafficking in this kind of figurative speech saying life is sort of like, you know, this painting, this song, this dance. if that doesn't lead to some of the confusion that churches have around the arts because very often in order to communicate the truth of something it requires multiple figurative approaches that sometimes seem contradictory mm -hmm. um god is god is our father but god is also right. not like a human father right uh, god is good but he's not like the human concepts of justice and so sure i think w when we talk about like quote-unquote christian movies or christian art maybe one mm -hmm. of the big the big drawbacks is that it wants to answer every question and it mm. wants to, it wants to end when the credits roll with no questions remaining. Right. And, and so there's this discomfort with the idea of metaphor and mystery. Mm. And, and mm. if at the end, it's not a systematic theology, then it right. hasn't achieved its purpose. Right. Do you feel like that's kind of in the vein of what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, very, very much so. And if that is our goal with, I'll say so-called Christian art, then I think unfortunately we are also reading the wrong Bible. Mm. <laughs> you're, you're wanting a, a, a Bible that doesn't exist because the Bible is full of things that have this open-ended 
um, quality or an ambiguous, not ambiguous as in like, I'll never understand it. It's sort of this surplus of meaning. So when Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd, it's not like he's saying, okay, what I'm really telling you is I can take care of you. If he'd wanted to say, I can take care of you, he would have said, said I can take care of you. He's the second person in the Trinity. He is not in want <laughs> for words, right? Yeah. But he says, I am the good shepherd because good shepherd is a metaphor. Is he literally an Australian shepherder? No. <laughs> no. But the metaphor sort of includes all these associations. Moses as shepherd, uh, the prophets and the priests and the kings having this shepherd-like quality. God as Yahweh as a shepherd. Um, shepherds as this kind of low socioeconomic, you know, sort of status. Shepherds as these keepers of a livelihood called, you know, sheeps and goats and such. And so when Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd, it's a metaphor that you have to figure out. You have to say, well, what does that mean? And it's an invitation to enter. Well, what I tell my, my theology students is the Trinity is not something we master. The Trinity is something we enter into a relationship with. Right. That requires time and space and wonderment and these things that <clears throat> mark the beginning of creation and mark the very end of the of, of scripture. They begin in wonder and it ends in wonder. It's not that you've mastered the presence of God. You've entered into this wonder-filled, yeah. mystery-rich, and artists are inviting us into these spaces, into these kinds of experiences so that we can be truly human. So one of the things that I really appreciated in the book as you begin to explore the different expressions of the arts is that you, you talk about this idea of singular powers, that, that mm. each art sort of has its own language, its its own means of communication. And you, right. you ask us to think about the singular powers of different mm. art forms and how they might be brought into the worship of the church mm-hmm. to help the church kind of speak her own native language. So that phrase singular powers, I think, is packed with meaning, but maybe yeah. maybe for someone kind of first jumping into this conversation, sure. we could we could unpack it a little bit more and explain it a little bit more. So could you could you yeah. unpack that? Yeah. Uh, the, the phrase singular powers is something that I borrow from from the theologian Jeremy Begbie. And he used it originally to talk about music. I write about it in the book because I found myself over the years frustrated that I kept hearing people in general, Christians in particular, saying things like uh, painting is spiritual or novels are spiritual or poetry is transcendent or movies are transcendent. And I thought you're all saying the same thing, but you're not, you're not saying anything, like, but, but do mo- <laughs> what are you saying though? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. What are you saying? <laughs> and so I had this idea that the singular powers of like, you know, dance, theater, movie, poetry, architecture, painting, you know, so on, so music, it's like, it's like an engine. It's like the engine of a blender, the engine of a Mercedes, and the engine of a Boeing plane. Uh, You open up the hood, and they're all engines, but they all are built to do very different things, to accomplish different things. It's like like music and and dance and architecture are like three ecologies, Mm -hmm. tropical, savanna, and tundra. And when you're in those spaces, you experience the world in distinct and unique ways. So take the example of, of sadness. We all experience sadness or loss or grief, um, sorrow in some way. And I could paint a painting. Um, a, a famous painter, Matthias Grunwald, paints this painting of, of a crucified Jesus with lesions on his body. And it's placed in a hospital for people who suffered from physical mm-hmm deformations on their body as if to say every time you come to this chapel and you see this Jesus he is one he is a God who understands your suffering and that image is there day after day hour after hour year after year and you get to look at one thing so that's one power of painting is sort of this permanent like you look at it and it just it's the one thing that looks back at you but uh, sadness or sorrow in the form of music is not a one thing that's there. It's something that takes you through time. So when you listen to Johnny Cash's cover of 
you know, nine inch nails hurt. I used to drive her crazy singing this over and over and over again. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, great, great yeah. example. Yeah. yeah. Or, or Mozart's Requiem, right? Mm, the experience yes. of sorrow through music is something that requires time. You begin somewhere and then you're taken through a sequence of sounds, of organized sounds. It's a, and, and you can't experience music unless you have time on your hands, you mm. know, to go through it, right. which is different from, say, um, the experience of sorrow or sadness through dance that requires your body. And many cultures do have very specific rituals where bodies are invited to manifest or express sorrow through very, you know, particular kinds of movement. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes our bodies, when they're sad, they hunch down. It's sort of this collapsing in on itself because sorrow has that heavy weighted feeling. You know, Prokofiev, has this Romeo and Juliet ballet and there's this one performance where uh, Juliet's mother uh, performs this extraordinarily moving, visceral, sort of acutely painful dance, ballet. And you think that's what sorrow is. But then you listen to Mozart's record and you're like, no, but that's what sorrow is. Or you Mm. look at a painting, but they're all doing it in sort of their distinctive media. And one of the things I hope to help you know, people understand through the book is they all do different things. They all are shaping our humanity in ways that, that we could say they're all good in, in unique ways. And we can welcome them, you know, depending on, I don't know what it is that we think about art in worship or not. I mean, some traditions, you know, would love for dance to be in worship. Others would say, you know, it has no place. And that's fine. Like, I'm not really trying to argue you one way or another. I am trying to say what you do does shape you does form you and mm. does form who you think God is. So I think that gets into one of the other questions I wanted to ask, because one of the the points that I love that you made in this book is that all of the arts both open up and close down different avenues of formation. Mm. So mm-hmm. they're going to shape us in one way and they're going to keep right. us from being shaped in another way. And, mm-hmm. and I know we've already kind of touched the subject of music and that's something that Mickey, you're a worship leader and I'm involved in music in other ways. So maybe let's just tackle it through the lens of music. How, how sure. does music open up opportunities for formation? And then how do different music choices close those things down as well? Sure. Yeah. That's, it's an exercise I give my students when I, when I teach this material and it's so, so fun to um, see my students kind of do this exercise. Mm-hmm. You know, I usually ask them to do it imagining their own congregation. Okay. Um, it makes it kind of more realistic. But one of the things I write about in the book, I use the example of sort of the idea of rescue. God rescues us. Uh, very common <laughs> from the very beginning all the way to the end. God is in the business of rescuing us. Musicians come along and say, oh, I'd love to help people uh, sing, you know, the experience. And so I use uh, Keith and Kristen Getty, Stuart Townend's song in Christ Alone, yeah. which has this metaphor of kind of rescue, you know, kind of coursing through it, rescue redemption. And then I use Hillsong's Ocean. And then I also have uh, the old African-American spiritual, uh, uh, just the old ship of Zion. And those are three very, very different musical genres mm-hmm. that are coming from very, very different theological worlds. So in the reform world, um, a priority is, and I say this, it's going to be in a neutral or positive way, is we want to understand with our brains everything that we need to understand in order to praise God in a worthy manner. Mm. We have this wonderful, dense set of verses that are carrying you through a lot of territory, and you're moving at a pretty good clip because the goal is to kind of move through time reciting sort of the faith in three verses, as it were, right? Um, and that's really important within a Reformed context is sort of this mental uh, understanding of who God is and you say as many things as you can because that's what you believe nourishes you. And I say that in a good way, right? In a Pentecostal charismatic world, a priority is not so much a cognitive um, recitation, but... Um, an experience of affection right. for God and an experience of, of contemplating the beauty of God. And in order to experience affection and contemplation or adoration, you need time. You can't rush mm. it. I mean, you know, in a relationship, 
uh, in your friendships, you know, it's like, right. I adore you. I'm out of the door. No, that's not <laughs> like, are you going to look at me? You know, right. It's expressive too. It's real. <laughs> yeah. Very much yeah. Like it takes that. time. And that's why uh, Hillsong originally, not the radio version, the original version is about seven to eight minutes long. Yeah. it's pretty Because long. in that charismatic world, you need time to move towards like your whole heart and your mind and your body towards this adoration, which for them, sort of the image of, is of John, you know, leaning on Jesus's, you know, chest. It's sort of this intimate act of love. Whereas maybe for the Reformed tradition, St. Paul is like the patron saint, kind of in their case. Yeah. But in the African-American spiritual, what you have is a lot of repetition, a lot of returning to kind of this simple set of imagery and that kind of returning again and again and again to this sort of phrasing sinks you down. Like you need to know in your bones mm. that God will rescue you when you're in a condition of slavery, right? Because everything around you is telling you, you are not getting rescued. So you say it over and over and over. And that's of course, sort of this quality of emphasis or, or yeah, sort of like Music, when it wants to say something, it will say it again and again, or have sort of emphatic musical sort of element to it. You know, like the music goes down suddenly, the music goes up suddenly. That's a way sort of to say, this is what matters. And in the sort of African-American spiritual tradition, you say things over and over as a way to like really, really deeply, deeply feel it mm. in your bones. And that's like three, you know, kinds of music all orbiting around the theme of rescue but doing it in very, very different. And, and they all expect very different things from our bodies, mm, right? What right. it is that your body is supposed to do when you're singing and how you're relating to other people in the room, right? right? And so if you only do one, your entire Christian life, it's not the end of the world, but it is shaping you. And I want people to understand what, what is it closing down? What opportunities to know God and to love God are we missing out, right? Mm. And so if God wants the fullness of our worship, how might different ways of singing or different art forms help sort of open up our lives to become whole and holy in our love and knowledge of God and worship? Yeah, it is so formative. And we just recently had a conversation with our friend Jay Kim, who wrote the book Analog Church, where he kind of mm. describes the role of the church in light of leveraging technology. And But he one of the things that he mentioned is that the task of the church is to go beyond capturing people's attentions, mm. like in a mm. worship service, for example. Right. And we have to capture their imagination. And I think mm. that plays so well with the concept of incorporating arts in worship because the arts can do that. And, and I think that it, it has done that. And I, I don't know, for me personally, uh, as a child, I grew up reading the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis. Right. And right. although that, that, that series just painted a picture of the gospel mm. in just such a creative way that captured right. my imagination as a child. And, and I sort of asked this question too, because I know a lot of our, the members of our congregation are families and mm. you have a family as well. And mm -hmm. so um, I just think of how formative the arts are in the lives of our kids and in mm. our families. And I just wanted to, to ask you how, how you think the arts can accomplish that, not just yeah. in us personally, but in the sure. children that we raise and the families that yes. we have. Yeah. Man, amen to that. I mm. love it. Keep talking. <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a passion of ours. We don't have children yet, but something that we think about uh, a lot is how yeah. can we best just immerse our future children in the gospel right. and, and what are some ways that, you know, we can incorporate art and, and other mediums to to supplement the things that they're learning. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> let, let me mention three things briefly. Um one of the reasons, well, I wrote a book on the Psalms. One of the reasons I encourage Christians um, to read the whole Psalter, you know, front to back, back to back, front to front, <laughs> over and over, is because the Psalter is forming our how we imagine God through prayer and worship. And the example I give is Psalm 139, which is the, you have, you know, search me, O God, and you have searched me and I'm wonderfully and fearfully made. We love those verses, right? But the very end of Psalm 139 has this imprecatory yeah. <laughs> curse, like angry stuff. And most of us just skip right over it and get to the end. But what it's doing, like so many other Psalms, like Psalm 12 and 13, which are like lament Psalms, 
is that they're helping us imagine a world where joy and sorrow or joy and anger can coexist. So we live in a world where happiness is this one thing. And if sorrow enters in, it ruins happiness. But the Psalter's imagination, imaginary world, not, not imaginary, it's the way that it imagines the world is a world where joy and sorrow can coexist and both are felt deeply, right? And if we grew up in family cultures or church traditions where it's like it's one or a zero, you're right. either happy or you're sad, mm. one's right, one's wrong, then the Psalter's coming along and saying, actually, you're imagining the, the world unfaithfully, yeah. and therefore you're harming yourself. You're mm. harming your ability to be in the world as a, a faithful follower of God, and you're harming your idea of God. Now, Jesus comes along, <clears throat> and he, he is talking to people who have been trained and taught to understand the world in a certain way. Not false, not terrible, but Jesus is going to tell them something that they have yet to fully imagine. So what does he do? He does not do, here are the five points of my sermon. Number one, two, three, and if you don't know what to do with it, here's my application. Mm -hmm. What he does over and over is he, re, he reprograms their imagination. The kingdom of God is like this and that, you know, mustard seed and, uh, you know, woman lo looking for her coin and mm, right. the nets and, the, and, you know, the, the lamps as a way to say, what I'm trying to do is sort of derail the way that you have imagined the world so you can see the world uh, in the way that your eyes now see reality as it really is, right? And so a lot of us, because we're human beings and because we're fallen human beings, do not see the world faithfully. We do not see reality rightly or truthfully. And artists can come along and disrupt our false ways of imagining the world. So I had, well, the cover of the book has a work that I commissioned from an artist in Austin mm. to say, it was for the season of Easter, and I said, would you please paint something? And it's nine foot high by 20 foot across. Oh my it would gosh. be the last thing that people see when they leave the sanctuary. Because what I want is for people to reimagine their lives saturated with the resurrection life and power of Jesus. Mm. Because most of us think resurrection is hap something happened a long time ago or it's gonna happen in a far-flung future, but it's not part of my reality. And I want you to show us what it looks like for the resurrection of Jesus to kind of to, you know, catch up every aspect of our mundane ordinary and our not mundane and extraordinary parts of our lives. And so that was an incredible gift to us as a congregation. Every time we left the service, that's what we see the resurrected Jesus making all things new in rather ordinary aspects of our lives. Hmm. So those are the kinds of examples, you know, that I've mentioned here. I mean, I write about in the book at length, but I'm just, I am deeply grateful for artists. They're not the only ones who are helping our imaginations be faithful, but they do do it in a unique and powerful way. Yeah. I think that that disruptive power of the arts is something that you highlight a great deal in your book. And and I, th this is such a great example. I didn't know that that's where the, the cover of the book came from. You said nine right. feet tall This is this painting? Yeah, and 20 feet across. Oh, my goodness. Um, well, David, as we, as we kind of wrap up this conversation, and for people listening, they're probably asking, Okay, so the, the arts have these unique powers to help us engage and form our imagination and, and shape the worship of the church. Maybe kind of a practical question, even if it's big picture, is as someone who's pastored artists, um, mm. how does the church better serve artists and help them to live into this vocation of mm -hmm. being an artist? How do we help them to, to see the part that they play in the fabric of, yeah. of God's economy? Yeah. Sure. Um, uh, well, I, I would say two things, if I can say it really, really simply. The first is uh, demonstrate an, a genuine interest in them. Yeah. You know, take them out for coffee or lunch or whatever, and, and simply <clears throat> ask them questions. You know, so you're an artist. Tell me about that. Tell me more. Why and when did you get interested? And what do you love? And what's hard for you? And what, what, if you had $50 million, what would you mm -hmm. do with it? I mean, that's just kind of a basic relational habit or pastoral habit, right? We should all show that kind of care to one another. But show it to artists as well. Instead of assuming, <clears throat> um, invite, you know, like tell me more, 
tell me what you love, tell me what's hard. Um, and then the second question could be, is there one thing I could do to support you? And that may be prayer, that may be encouragement, that may be patronage, that may be making connections. But I think those would be the two things that'd be wonderful starting points. You know, just tell me more, you know, tell me about yourself and what is one way that I could support you. So one more piggyback that I would add to that is if there are artists who find themselves in a congregation kind of non, not knowing how to incorporate their vocation or their passion mm. into the church, what are some ways that artists can can serve the church as well? Yeah, I mean, that I would say that's a tricky answer because I, I might say not, not all artists need to um, do something with their art to serve the church. They might serve the church in a hundred other ways sure, sure. that have nothing to do, right, <clears throat> with their art making. Otherwise, I mean, artists could sort of reciprocate and say, is there a way that I could serve? Mm. Um, and that means artists may need to be humble or at least God, ask God to give them the grace to remain humble because they may not do something that they're the most excited about or that uses all of their skill, you know, or all of their passions. But to simply come along <clears throat> with the grace that God has given all of us to serve, you know, to be a servant. Is there something I could serve? And that may be the children's ministry, um, which may not seem exciting, but talk about an investment. I mean, I, I, it took me four or five years to turn my face towards the children's ministry. And then when I did, it's because I felt like the Holy Spirit was convicting me. I thought I was an idiot for not having started earlier because if you have this wonderful community of artists investing in children, I mean, I hate to put it in this terms, but that's an investment that will pay off dividends for the rest of those kids' lives. That will it charge their imaginations, their vision of what it means to be, you know, human in the world. But maybe like I could be an artist because I just hung out with a real artist, right? Mm. Five years old, 10 years old, yeah. 15 years old. That's that. an extraordinary way to care for the community. But there may be other ways. And so again, I, I guess in humility with a servant heart say, may I serve? <clears throat> through my art and, you know, can we explore it together? And so there's a mutuality about it and a collaborative rather than kind of a, a top down, here's what you do, right. go do it. But th there's a sense in which we're in this together, I think is a wonderful way for artists to feel like they can really serve um, the church well. And again, they may serve the church in ways that are non-artistic and that's perfectly fine too. I, at least I would say. Yeah. I love that. Uh, David, Thank you just so much for taking the time to, to sit down with us and, and cast pleasure. a vision, uh, both in your book and in the work that you've done over so many years for how the arts can disrupt us and how they can use their powers to shape us yeah. in our well, understanding of, of the, the God that we've been called to serve. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of The Stone Table. If you've enjoyed this conversation with David Taylor as much as we did, please be sure to rate and subscribe. It helps to get the word out. If you've got any questions or you have any topics that you would find helpful if they were discussed on the show, please be sure to send us an email at thestonetable at baylife.org. For Baylife Church, I'm Mickey, and this is The Stone Table.